Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the Dunkirk of Brexit podcasts. Every week we use state-of-the-art conversation and CGI analysis to depict Britain's harrowing retreat from the continent in tear-jerking detail. I'm Dorian Linsky and with me as always are my two co-hosts. Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? Hello Ian, how are you? Uh, Very well indeed, thank you. And you wrote an entertaining piece this week headlined My Role in the Great Brexit Conspiracy. (laughs) Which begins, my favourite online conspiracy theory, there's many to choose from, is that I personally helped secure Brexit and then turned against it so I could make money off a book deal. Now, obviously, I saw the car you pulled up in today, so it's worked. Exactly, yeah, but now uh, that BMW what? didn't come cheap. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, break, so break down the theory. Oh, the theory is as follows, which is basically that I was, um, you know, campaigning for Brexit, secured it, quickly realised that there was a dearth of talent on the Remain side and switched over so that I could make an extraordinary fortune with my book and my various media appearances. Based on what? I don't remember you being a big voice on Vote Leave. Uh, Well, there's a very good reason that you don't remember that, which is that it never took place. (laughs) Of course, so basically this all comes down to you, man. You're a sceptic views, and the, the tendency of the internet not to sort of to take people's actions as a form of conspiracy and always some shadowy thing going on in the background. Uh, and so it rather stems from that, so I felt like I needed to address it. Which I did, at length, in my personal blog. Right. You've been being into changing your mind recently. <laughs> well, you like well. my Chavez piece, didn't you? I like Basically, the- I've had a week of actually saying that I'm wrong about a couple of things, which uh, doesn't come naturally to me, nor to anyone in the commentator class. You get a, rather a lot of praise for it, and I think rather more than one deserves. But there is this sort of... I suppose there's this sort of process that takes place. You see it a lot with the Corbyn people, where he's sort of considered this highly principled figure, because he hasn't changed any view for about 30, 40 years, and that's considered good in and of itself. I sort of think that if you're going to cling to convictions, you still need to interrogate them all the time and see as the facts change and stick, have a sense that you're actually maintaining them as the world shifts around you, not just turn into a statue that stands firm as everything moves on. And uh, hopefully, if you start interrogating your views and talking about them openly, one might get somewhere. Well, and also here is Peter Collins, former business editor of The Economist and now keen armchair Brexitologist. Peter, why are people so uh, reluctant to to sort of publicly change their mind about big things? Well, there's no doubt several reasons. One thing is maybe that we're all populists now, you know, that we're all sort of to some extent infected by both the right-wing populists, the Nigel Farage's, and the left-wing populists, Corbyn and co. The idea that everything's a loyalty test, uh, you know, rather than here is what I think based on the facts. It's a loyalty test, and if you change your mind, you become a traitor, uh, basically. Uh, there's also this thing maybe that, you know, you look at what the politicians in Westminster often do at their worst. It's like the Oxford and Cambridge debating societies. It's all a game in which the key thing is not to be caught out being inconsistent with something you said uh, 10 years ago. That's more important than what should we be doing now with the health service or the education service. Well, I found uh, I found that, that actually people... On Twitter, everybody becomes like a politician. The whole discussion of, of Venezuela, not, not Brexit, I know, but obviously 
been a big issue this last month. Um, it's it's really just a game. It's yeah. really just yeah. about point yeah. scoring and spotting inconsistencies yeah. in the other side and doubling down on yours. And at, at no point did it seem to bear any resemblance to the importance of the issue or the experiences of people in that country. It was just like ch- like stupid chess. And did you see uh, Tim Montgomery, the former Conservative uh, ministerial aide, former editor of Conservative Home website, setting up this new website called unheard.com, that's mm. heard as in herd of sheep, and in in opening it, he argued that uh, this and Ian is poised to disagree with this um, <laughs> that there's too much political coverage, there's too much politics. You you wouldn't expect the editor of Politics.co.uk to agree with mm. that, but you know it, the, the, it seems to me there's something to it. Uh, many 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 years ago, when I worked at the BBC, I always felt that there was too much of a rush to do the Westminster angle on things. So something bad, a crisis erupts in the NHS instead of concentrating on. What's the cause of this? How? What is there in the way, the very complex way the NHS is run that's made this thing happen at doctor surgeries? Instead, it's how is this going to embarrass the health secretary, and is the opposition going to take the opportunity to bash the government? That's that's more important, it seems to me. And I think he's got he's got something there that it's also infecting the public that we we are obsess on these things instead of thinking, well, this is a technical issue to do with the health, you know, the, the incentives in the health. Well, there's services. a layer of the Brexit debate which seems to be purely about. Um, what does this mean for Labour or the Tories in the next election? Where it's sort of like everything that's actually happening, everything we discuss, is just it's just sort of an abstract concern. And what's really important is how is this playing with the voters and how does this enable you to hold your coalition together and outmaneuver the other side? And it, it's sort of there's something slightly kind of immoral about that. that all of this is, is true, but surely politics is a mixture of the two things. There are you know, back when I was sort of in university and, and reading a lot of Marx and stuff like that, everything was always structural. It was always the systemic stuff that took place, and it didn't really matter who it was that was in power at any given moment. Classes and countries and economies worked in a certain way. And then I remember, you know, the beginning really of when I was covering things in Parliament, and there was the vote on the Syria intervention when Ed Miliband was around with David Cameron. And on that day, if you remember that sort of way back, there was suddenly this amendment put forward, which was looking for UN resolution and, and how that went. And it basically scuppered the whole thing. When Cameron got up in the Commons that moment, he is visibly outraged by what has taken place because he started that day thinking that Miliband would be with him. Now, that day was chaos. Looking at the sort of huddles just outside the Commons of the Labour guys and the Tory guys, no one knew what they were doing. Ed Miliband that morning did not know really what he was going to do. And suddenly you look at it and you think, personalities matter. The systems, of course, are this underplay underneath it. That counts. That, 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 that's important. But on top of that, there are personalities. And the, the way that those personalities are, how sturdy they are, whether they're open to doubt, whether they're even the mood that they're in, even whether they've you know, had breakfast that morning, all of that can come into play. And in fact, what we usually do is we simplify it in one way or another. It's an absolute mess of systems and personalities. And you can read Ian writing about Chavez at the Prospect website and the Great Brexit Conspiracy at iandump.com. And we're delighted to have a special guest. Mike Stutchbury is a historian, blogger and former teacher and the star of that story you might have read with the headline Alt-Right Commentator Gets Schooled by Historian Over <laughs> Diversity in Roman Britain. School, be- school being the correct verb, I believe, there. Um, one of the editors of Alt-Right Lie Factory Infowars accused a BBC children's show of creating a falsely diverse impression of Roman Britain. Mike put him right in no uncertain terms, and it all turned into what academics technically refer to as a shitstorm, which saw Mary Beard being attacked by scholarly attack dog Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He was still at it the other day. Academia journos are nice housebroken submissive dogs, he wrote. By collectively going against me, they didn't realise they need to fight a wolf. 
<laughs> Scary stuff. Hello, Mike. Welcome to Romania. Hello, what, everybody. Um, what, what, what happened there? I just have a deep and abiding loathing for Paul Joseph Watson, and finally he said something that was was in my wheelhouse that I could say something about. But you know, as as a history teacher and, and um, you know, working in England for the last couple of years, speak, work, working in some particularly deprived areas um, with large multicultural student bodies, um, you, you come into the classroom and you, you're teaching. The story of Britain, the Romans, the Anglo-Saxons, the waves of invasion and migration. And I think one of the things that we don't really ever focus on strongly enough is the fact that constantly from Neolithic, well, basically from Neolithic times, we're finding traces of other other cultures, other peoples coming here and, and being part of the story. And now I, I knew from you know my reading and my, my teaching that uh, basically the idea that there were no... You know, Romans of, of colour in Britain was a complete fallacy. And so I thought that I'd better put him straight. And then things escalated, as you said, into a shitstorm. So there, there we go. There you go. He confirms that is the correct terminology. Yes. <laughs> well, um, we'll be talking to Mike later about Europe's deep historical background, what it says about the whole Brexit mess. But first, a gentle reminder to subscribe to Romaniac so you never miss an episode of Finally Milled Ramoning. If you're an Apple user, you can find us in the podcast app or on the iTunes Music Store. And if you could find it in your heart to give us a nice star rating and review when you're there, that would be amazing. Android users were on Acast, Stitcher, Overcast and Pocketcast too. And all the links are at Romaniacs.com. Time for Brexit News Round. Firstly, the estimated bill for leaving the EU keeps going up and down like an incredibly expensive yo-yo, depending on what assumptions it's based on. <laughs> Peter, what's the latest figure leaking from Whitehall and how seriously should we take it? Well, so the Sunday Telegraph last weekend quoted three unnamed sources familiar with Britain's negotiating strategy as saying the government was prepared to pay up to 40 billion euros. That's about 36 billion pounds as the the, the net Brexit bill. Uh, that is, is com- in comparison with the 60 billion uh, euros figure that the EU side has been floating recently. So obviously all the other press goes rushing after this, as happens when one newspaper gets an exclusive and asks Downing Street people to confirm this. Now, when a PR person says to you that something's speculation, that often means, as we all know, it's true, but we don't want to announce it yet. And when they say that something is inaccurate, that often means it's basically correct, apart from a few details. So when Downing Street replied to some of these journalists that it was inaccurate speculation that there were, Britain was going to make a 40, offer of up to £40 billion, that sounded to me just stopping short of a denial. And then other journalists who rang up Downing Street were told, we don't recognise that figure, which is an even weaker denial. I love we don't recognise yeah, that figure. I can't, no, I can't see it. No, uh, no, I can't see it. It's not here. <laughs> Never no, seen no, it before in my life, mate. Yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, wrong number. Yeah. I mean, I don't. There's there's another in possible interpretation. I, I mean, they have to they have to kind of use those stock phrases because they don't know where they're going to end up in negotiation. So they can't say now we definitely won't pay that amount because they very well might or it might be less, might be more, whatever. But there's another interpretation which is quite possible that people in Whitehall are just sick and tired of the British government refusing to engage in this issue. They, you know, the Europeans have said over and over they don't have any real content to what they're saying about us when, when we're talking about the budget. The British side don't really deny that. When you talk to people in Westminster, they're like, well, we're trying to keep a very nimble approach, you know, which is, you know, there's a minimum of amount of sort of intellectual baggage, which if so, that they've really succeeded in doing. Um, and my guess is that this might have been an attempt to just force them to come out with a statement. But of course, all of it's a nonsense because Europe doesn't deal in the numbers. 
Europe deals and the things you would have to get to the numbers, which is assessing, you know, are we on the hook for the whole seven year financial period that ends at the end of 2020? And how are we going to work out the pensions mess, the pensions mess for EU institution staff being really quite grotesquely complicated and horrific to even look at? So I, I, it's quite possible that Downing Street were distancing themselves or that it was actually true. It's also possible that this is Whitehall just trying to prod number 10 into actually having some authority. And also we have to re- absolutely always remember that on both sides, they're not monolithic. You've got different people with different attitudes. For instance, Guy Verhofstadt uh, from the European Parliament will step up and say something, and that's treated sometimes as if it's come from Michel Barnier, the yeah. official negotiator who's put there by the Commission. They're, they're not all in agreement. They, they have to, will have to eventually agree on what they offer to Britain. And likewise, we can be absolutely certain that the Cabinet and possibly officials within Whitehall, <laughs> the civil servants, may not be entirely united on, on their approach. So all these things have to be taken with a, a sort of pinch of salt, don't they? It was quite telling, I thought, that actually how easily that went down in the press. I mean, you obviously had, you had your John Redwoods and your Bill Cashers and, you know, the, the lunatics came out and, and talked a bunch of lunacies. But that's priced in. We know that that's going to happen. Actually, most Tory MPs didn't do that. Most of the press, I mean, the, the Sun came out, I mean, with the most nonsense way. I mean, I think it, it, it added up. It said, we should pay $24 billion because that's three years' worth of $8 billion. And you just think, wow. Like, you know, you, could, you would have had space on a fag packet for the calculations that you just did. But nevertheless, the Sun were basically saying, we are going to pay some money at some point. So actually, in terms of getting people into a realistic position on this issue, I thought the response to it was, was fairly reassuring. You think Brexiteers are, are, are pretty happy with the fact that we're going to have to pay between 20 to 40 billion? I don't think that, well, I think we're probably going to end up paying more than that. I think we're basically going to pay whatever the EU asks, because until we do, we can't talk about trade. And until we can talk about trade, we can't talk about transition. And that leaves us facing the abyss. You know, so, so ultimately, because they have the power, we will mostly pay what they want with some give or take here or there. And I think most sensible people in the Conservative Party, of which okay, that's not a useful phrase to use because there are so few of them. But everyone outside of, sort of say, the 30 to 40 MPs who are just the total lunatic headbangers are now trying to acclimatise themselves to the reality of the situation. Sovereignty is very expensive, isn't it? Yeah, it is very expensive, and it's even more expensive when you start putting up tariff barriers and you lose all investment or any confidence in your economy, as we're about to find out. Still worth every penny, I'm sure. (laughs) Next up, do Britain's somewhat imperfect Brexit negotiations mask a cunning plan so clever that David Davis's opposite numbers can't hope to understand it? There's a theory floating around that Davis and his team are only pretending to be disorganised in order to lure EU diplomats into a false sense of security. Maltese Prime Minister Joseph Muscat said last week, people who say Brits don't know what they're doing are wrong. I've lived in Britain, I know the British mentality, and non-prepared British government officials simply doesn't exist. I can only assume he lived in Britain for, for one long afternoon and <laughs> didn't meet any government <laughs> officials, but it's very nice of him. Peter, is Big Dave pool-sharking his way to a great deal, or are we the Baldricks of the EU? Well, it's interesting that it's not just Muscat saying this. There was a, um, a piece on the Politico website, I think, that quoted various European Union officials as saying the same thing that, you know, we're sure that the Brits are actually up to something. And what we now have, what we now know, is that the government is promising to um, slap down a load of position papers in the next few weeks on all sorts of things from the Customs Union, the Northern Ireland issue, which is the really difficult one, uh, data protection, all sorts of other things. Uh, supposedly, ministers will be shown the first drafts of these around 
around the 21st August onwards. And then the next week, of course, is the next round of EU talks. So it's building up to to look like the possibility that that might happen. But we do have to remember that, you know, for fans of Baldrick, uh, they'll already know uh, all of Baldrick's um, cunning plans always turn out to be disastrous. So, you know, let's see let's see how it works out. Does this actually work? I mean, considering that, 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 that Prime Minister Muscat and co seem to be on to this, <laughs> this possibility. I mean, does it actually, I mean, it might work in the kind of, you know, in the sugar industry which is when david davis wrote his business advice book wasn't it hmm. but does it really work on this level that you just you turn up pretending oh i don't know what i'm doing and then like and then the and then thinking the eu will just go we're going to take this guy for a ride and then whammo you know like it doesn't seem like that's the way that high-end <laughs> negotiations work well it seems to it, it it can only work it seems to me if you actually do have a genuinely cunning plan so for instance look at the northern ireland one mm. you know if they can come up with this way of saying look we found a way to quit the single market quit the customs union and yet not have any border at all in ireland because nobody in ireland wants the border back if they can do that then they are ex- indeed very cunning but this is what we're waiting for I me mean, you know nobody else has been able to think of a way to do this that you know, most sensible people it seems to me are saying well don't quit the customs union you know d- don't undo it all uh, nobody is saying you can have it or have your cake and eat it in in the particular case of the Irish border, are they? I don't think anyone really believes that they do have a cunning plan behind all of this. I don't think the people that Politico talked to for that piece really think this. I think they're just so baffled by our sudden inadequacy that they're suddenly having to invent some kind of theory to explain it. I don't think the journalists who wrote that piece believe it. I don't think anyone in Westminster or Whitehall believes it. I don't think anyone in the world actually believes that we have a cunning plan at the bottom of all this. You know, I think this is just what you do in the absence of a better explanation. But the better explanation is that as a country, we've gone mad and this is the outcome. It's like when I play pool, I'm not a shark. I'm genuinely bad at pool. (laughs) I will continue to be bad at pool until I lose. (laughs) Finally, in our news roundup this week, uh, knowing me, Dorian Linsky, knowing you, Peter Collins, aha. Knowing me, Peter Collins, knowing you, Dorian Linsky, aha, or aha, Alan Partridge is back. Wasn't that a terrible impression? Anyway, Alan Partridge is so terrible. (laughs) Anyway, Alan Partridge is apparently returning to the BBC next year to become the corporation's voice of Brexit in a new comedy series. As as I understand it, the idea is that having got rid of Alan Partridge off to Sky TV, the BBC's knock-kneed bosses realise they get in panic because Liam Fox and so on accusing them of being anti-Brexit and failing to respond to those of their licence payers who are pro-Brexit. So they think, who do we know who, who's ever presented a programme ever for the BBC who might have voted Brexit? Oh, Alan Partridge, and suddenly he's back doing the programme. That's the idea. Well, uh, the writers that, that Steve Coogan works with, Rob and Neil Gibbons, are fantastic. The last Alan Partridge book, Nomad, is one of the funniest books I've ever read, genuinely. So I'm sure this will be good. Um, is it will, it... will it just give Brexiteers another reason to, to be annoyed? Well, as, as you've already got people in the Telegraph put this story up on their website. You've got the usual angry kind of, privatise the bloody BBC at once and all that kind of thing. So some people certainly will. But I just wonder if we'll get a bit of the Alf Garnet effect that, you know, if he comes on and does this parody of a sort of Brexit voting, um, you know, third-rate celebrity, um, uh, some people will think, this guy's right, you know. He's right. You know, this guy's got good ideas. Uh, rather, has happened with Alf Garnet, that when he was trying to parody a sort of small-town bigot, small-minded bigot kind of attitude, some people actually thought he was speaking truth. Or the pub landlord or Judge yep. Dredd or it, any it, of these. Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that, is, that is, I think we'll get both. We'll get some people who will get very angry at the metropolitan liberal bias of the BBC, and some people will think, good on you, Partridge. I mean, Brexiters don't 
mostly need another reason to get angry, do they? I mean, they always <laughs> just seem to be permanently, you know, angry and full of their own sort of emotional inadequacies. And I'm sure that this will, you know, merely add fuel to the fire. He's the, the funny thing is, I don't. I, all, there was always these sort of little bits of politics in in that show. I'm talking about like the one that was on when I was a kid, where he's staying at the hotel, and but that was never the. That was never the bits I liked. The bits I liked were always the sort of sweet personal moments and the, the fact that his assistant is clearly sort of in love with him or that weird thing that there's something terrible in, in the drawer in the hotel and every time someone opens it, he has to jump across the room and slam it shut. That was all the <laughs> stuff that always made me laugh. I, 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 in my head, this doesn't quite work, but I, I stand prepared to well, be corrected. Well, in some ways, he's quite Europhile. He had a, a Ukrainian girlfriend, Sonia. He called his son Fernando after the ABBA song. Uh, <laughs> he once said... Come and see bitter and listen to craft work. <laughs> and, uh, and yet there's something purely Brexit about him. And I do feel like the, the Brexit as an adjective, I've noticed that people, that friends, will just describe a situation or a person as a sort of Brexit. And so I was talking about the Smiths recently, and it's like, well, Morrissey is, is very Brexit. And Marr is, like, very Remain. It's hard to find musicians and entertainers who are vocal Leave supporters. But there's something about Alan Partridge where he's always had these kind of these these very sort of like odd English characteristics, which now translate as Brexit, which before I would never have thought was as political. I always thought he was probably a Tory, but it wasn't politics wasn't the thing. But there's something about all of those things which, which you know, which now seem to have taken on a, a, a harsher edge, I think, as so many things about England have now. And because a lot of that is is based on the sort of thing that a, a particular kind of person, when they turn eighteen or twenty one, they they flee their hometown and go to the nearest city and stay there. And then when you when you go out, you you, you will meet people. And now you will very often project Brexit onto them in a way that's not really strictly fair. And that's by virtue of you know accent or views or the kind of jacket they have. There was that. Do you remember that survey of Leave and Remain voters on their favourite brands? And you couldn't have asked for a better sort of just description of, of the, the massive cultural chasm between these two groups. You know, on the one hand, it was Apple, and on the other hand, on the other hand it was... Greg's. It, it was Greg's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it, it should be Weatherspoons, well, of A few years ago, I mean, for, you know, there were the sort of metropolitan, you know, liberals would set up a, uh, you know, a kind of tea shop, and they'd all dress up as, like, air raid wardens and have all this kind of, like, sort of World War Two kitsch kind of thing. Um, and that was just, like, it was just a thing. It was like a keep calm and carry on person. And now you go into one of those things and you think, this is so Brexit. Mm. It's like it's banging on about the war. It's banging on about local ingredients. All these things which, you know, were at best annoying before. Suddenly now seems to suggest a political allegiance that that the people that set it up probably don't have. I I do think it sort of colours a lot of aspects of the country. And we'd sort of reclaimed a lot of that older stuff in a sort of ironic way. The keep calm and carry on thing is the classic example of, you know, you go to a house in East London, it's a tea cloth with that on and blah, blah, blah. And actually, it's almost like it sort of got raised from the dead in a politically threatening way that that sort of quite sweet, depoliticized nostalgia that you have as a Brit, that a lot of your personality is based on, your national personality, has suddenly been weaponized against them when it's like, no, actually, we are literally going to turn the country into the past now. This isn't about, you know, you getting to have, you know, sort of... We get Nigel Farage having a photo of himself outside, you know, cinema, having seen Dunkirk. Mm. And now Dunkirk, which obviously Christopher Nolan's been working on for ages... It's like, is it pro-Brexit or is it anti-Brexit? Well, it's, it's neither. You know, it's about World War Two. But, you know, that's the problem when you have a huge polarising issue. I was just, just uh, thinking that it's got this immense political weight now that, that you can't have a conversation about Dunkirk without talking about the politics of it. I mean, there's, there's a completely separate debate about the representation of um, Indian and Pakistani 
soldiers that were, who were there in in in, in you know, talking about um, why weren't they shown? But on the other hand, there is this, there's also the you know is it a pro Brexit or is it an anti Brexit film? And it's it's you know it's just a you hate to say it's just a film, but in many ways it it's it's, it's gained this this immense weight and this immense significance amongst a certain strata of the population that you'd never sort of really expect otherwise. Which yeah. I'm. I'm I mean, I guess I, I kind of expected it, knowing that it was a sort of, you know, this loaded, national, absolutely pivotal event in British history. But, um, yeah. So, well, it was I mean, a defeat that we managed to sort of, re- which we remember yeah. as a victory, mm. which seems like... Seems very quintessentially... It's so British. <laughs> yeah, such a quintessential... Well, but, but I think we need that, right? I mean, historically, because so much of our history is basically about us slaughtering a bunch of people in other countries, we, we, we don't get to consider that in a warm, positive way. When you look at things like Charge of the Light Brigade, when you look at really our whole World War II experience, which is the one country holding out against the Nazi empire, but it's not about winning the war. It's about holding out against defeat, even the entirety of that narrative. That's all us finding moments in our history that we can claim as sort of the underdog, like a sort of a, a moment that doesn't make us feel too terrible about ourselves. Because I think empire makes so much of the rest of it sort of unsayable. Partridge would love Dunkirk, wouldn't he? Yeah. No, he would, surely he wouldn't he'd get too multiple much times. <laughs> it would be too much for him. He'd, he'd get heart palpitations. Norwich did in fact vote to remain, thanks in part to the students. But I think perhaps Alan lives on the outskirts. Pretty sure the travel tavern was on the outskirts. Swaffle somewhere. Yeah. yeah, so it might actually have been in a Leave constituency, so it might be safe there. Unless we're all destroyed by North Korean nuclear weapons by Friday, that's all the Brexit news for this week. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to our first main topic of the week, EU border chaos as Brussels tyrants impose a three-hour wait at customs to ruin your holiday. Ian, be our Virgil and guide us through the nine circles of travel hell. Indeed. Well, it's, it's summer holiday season, um, and in tabloid speak, that means you've got to have holidays from hell coverage because everything in tabloid world has to be fucking dreadful, and that's the only way that they can possibly appreciate it. So there was three things, really. I mean, the first one is the heat wave, which they basically named after the devil because it was so severe. The second one was, in parts of Spain, these anarchist groups are attacking tourist buses and slashing the wheels and things because they've all gone terribly anti-tourist over there, apparently, or so I'm told by the Times. And thirdly, it was these massive queues at the airport, which were variously blamed on Brexit. So the the Daily Express (laughs) called them a Brexit hate crime. Um, (laughs) UKIP's Home Affairs spokesperson, Jane Collins, said, it's typical of the inward-looking EU to take this kind of approach, but it is not going to make us change our minds on Brexit just possibly change our minds on holiday destinations. Uh, and the sun, <laughs> the sun came out and um, sort of sensibly said, oh, this has got nothing to do with Brexit, which is correct, but then went on to attack Remainers for apparently claiming that it was something which they did not do. So what is this actually about? Really, this is actually about a, a regulation that came out last April um, for the Schengen area. Now, because of our opt-out, we're not in the Schengen area. Uh, neither sort of Britain nor the Republic of Ireland are in the Schengen area. Pretty much everyone else is, including the EEA states, places like Norway. So actually, even those guys with an arm's length relationship got sucked into this thing. And, uh, I mean, Schengen, because we talk about the sort of free movement and borders as if they're the same thing, or this, we're going to take back control of our borders, we don't really talk very accurately about what Schengen is. But Schengen, we have free movement now. Schengen is really about border-free travel. Now, sometimes that stops. I mean, you know, countries like Hungary were chucking up their borders when it came to the refugee crisis. But generally speaking, you keep a pretty solid level outside on the border of Schengen, and then you allow mostly border-free travel on the inside, although there are some complications there. 
Last April, after the terror attacks that were happening in Paris and Brussels, there was a new regulation on that. And basically what the regulation did was it asked them to double-check passenger data against an extensive database in addition to the one that it was already checked against. So you've got Schengen Information System, your passenger data is checked against that, but now it's also checked against Interpol's list of stolen and lost travel documents. None of that, of course, has anything to do with Brexit whatsoever. But I do think that there's something to sort of learn by the whole thing, really. I think there's a couple of things there. But the first one is, you know, what Brexit is about is an increase in bureaucracy and administration and queuing, whether it's queuing for people or whether it's queuing for customs goods or even for services or even pensions going. This the is British about like queuing, though. So that's well, they should. So they should be keen on this. <laughs> yeah. But apparently it turns out not so much. Um, so this is, of course, par for the course on how Brexit is going to operate, even if for this exact moment right now, this happens not to be about Brexit. And it's undoubtedly true that we will be forced to go through much longer passport queues when we get to these countries when we're outside of the EU. As it is right now, the only thing that they can check for is whether your passport is a valid document and whether it really belongs to you. Once we're outside of the EU, they can check for a bunch of other reasons. You know, for instance, where are you going to stay on your first night? What's the purpose of your trip? All of the usual stuff that you'd know if you've been to the US or somewhere like that. The second part is, and I think this is the really telling moment, is just that there is a genuine sense of British superiority in the Brexit debate. So we've had these newspapers telling us for ages, freedom of movement is a madness and, you know, people shouldn't just be able to come in willy-nilly whenever they want. But suddenly, as soon as it's Brits who are facing tremendous queues going overseas, it's an absolute bloody disgrace and aren't we the victimised, poor, hard-done-by people of the world? And that unmistakable bit of DNA in the Brexit debate, that innate sense of British superiority, really comes out to play in moments like this. So while it doesn't tell you anything particularly interesting politically or even sort of systemically, it does tell you something very interesting emotionally about the Brexit mindset. It's, the, it's like that, summed up by that, you know, the vox pop of the guy, the British guy in Spain, going, we're going to take our country back. <laughs> <laughs> like that kind of, almost could completely acknowledge hypocrisy. It's like, but I can still do whatever, I can go wherever I want, right? That's still cool. I think there's also there's an element of, it also shows how the, the tabloid mentality has infected the so-called broadsheets as well. That's this idea that, you know, you ruthlessly pander to the most unreasonable prejudices of your readers because that's what tabloids basically do. You see that in the broadsheets. And, of course, when once the broadsheets start covering something, the guys in the BBC newsrooms, I used to work there many years ago, I doubt if it's changed at all since those days. They go, oh, my God, everybody's doing the Evening Standard's even got a piece on it. Oh, my God, we've, we've got to do this. We've got to be not seen to be... Uh, play, playing down something that's playing big in, in the in the printed papers. So it just gains this momentum. And something, you know, and, and the other side of the story, which is that if you want strong borders, the countries that you want to travel to will impose strong borders against you and you'll have to lump it, never gets told. It's just pandering to the, the, the prejudices of people who, who suddenly find that they're not such a good thing. Because our entire attitude for the last, you know, what, 15 months has just been, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. There's never been any talk about other countries having interests, about the quid pro quo that you have in any international sort of system or any kind of negotiation that you have. We was, it took us about six months before people even accepted that you couldn't stay in the single market while getting rid of freedom of movement. You just It's typified by that Boris Johnson thing of, you know, I want my cake and eat it too. This is the attitude that we've had for ages. And now, so whenever we look overseas, we think, well, surely we get to go wherever the hell we damn well please, but no one gets to come over here. This is politics if it was conducted entirely by four-year-old children. Mike, is this, is this basically British history? 
Pretty like, much. I want, I want, <laughs> I want. Uh, we want everything that we want. You can have from anything a, you like. From about the, the, the Tudor era on, just the beginnings <laughs> of... I think, so, I think the Spanish Armada, you saw off the Spanish, got a huge burst of undeserved confidence, and it's just gone on from there. <laughs> once, oh, and once, once we beat the, the, the Dutch, the Anglo-Dutch War, I think that maybe that also snowballed it as well. But, uh, yeah... I think that basically that is the, the story of English history. So blame, blame the Spanish Armada yeah. for Brexit. It's a, it was a long yeah. process. Mm. That's where it started. Um, and another thing that came up on um, someone made a very smart point on Twitter that if we were going to be having or increased, you know, bureaucracy at the borders, did we not need to be building new infrastructure in, you know, in somewhere like Dover? Do we not need to be preparing for this in some way? There didn't seem to be, there didn't seem to be any announcements of of how we're going to deal with this on an infrastructure level. So, I mean, that, that's undoubtedly true. But the thing is, a lot of that will be dependent on the outcome of negotiations. And so we just don't know what the infrastructure is that we need to build until we've arranged with them how that's going to work. So let's say, you know, if, if we have an interim deal on customs union, we'll have to wait for what I'm sure will be a miraculous position paper that the British government puts out later on this month. That would mean that you wouldn't actually need those customs checkpoints right now if you can arrange it. Or, for instance, let's say that we would accept uh, the, the, you know, being outside the customs union in terms of tariffs, but we could say, look, we're going to stick with the WTO's most favoured nation rule. That means that we'll share the same tariffs for other people. That means that we'd have the same tariffs as the EU, and that means we don't need to have country of origin checks, which are these very bureaucratic, laborious requirements. A little bit of clever negotiation could mean that you could have a bit of the customs union but escape another little bit of it. So because we don't know where talks go, it's very hard to know what infrastructure to build. And that, of course, is why the dynamic is so against us in Brexit talks. Because it's not just about saying, we've got all this work to do, we've got 18 months to do it, let's get on with it. We don't know what we need to do until the talks are finished. But by the time the talks are finished, we're staring right at the abyss. The cliff edge is right there in front of us, and there's no time to do it. This, of course, has been said for very, very many months now, and Brexiters have ignored it throughout, and now we're getting closer and closer to that cliff edge, and they're starting to become marginally more sane, but not so much so that they might actually do anything about the situation. So are they going to have to appeal to the Dunkirk spirit and, and have people from across Britain coming in with their marquees and pup tents <laughs> to, uh, you know, to act to process all the, all the people coming into the That's going to be in the executive summary of the position paper. But also, the, 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 um, maybe it explains why there's a little... Um, less scorn for the idea of a transition period on the Brexit side now because it's realised that, well, we will need a transition period in order to have the customs posts or whatever. Um, So the danger, therefore, is that we end up with a a bad, from our point of view, hard Brexit uh, because the transition period gives the time to build all these border posts and to to, to park a week's worth of lorries coming in and out of the country uh, just on the the, the corner somewhere in Dover. Uh, Whereas if we didn't have the... The, um, the infrastructure, it wouldn't be possible to have a hard border. Mm. Um, I mean, there is this thing, the European Travel Information and Authorization System. Uh, do we call it ETIAS or do we call it ETIAS? Whichever way, you're about to start using ETS this word. ETIAS sounds like a kind of exchange, like a kind of... Sounds like French, doesn't it? Like a dreamy exchange <laughs> student. Or <a> luxury <laughs> airline. You have a very optimistic <laughs> sense about you sometimes. <laughs> Um, okay, so I mean, basically this thing is, you know, it's an authorization to travel. It doesn't mean that you're okay once you get there. So, you know, you can have this thing authorized, you get to France, and they may have problems with your passport or your visa or whatever else. But it's something that the EU is about to implement. Basically, third countries, which will soon include us unless we stop it, 
uh, will now have to fill in this form online. It takes about five minutes, I think it costs, or, or maybe a little bit longer, and it will cost about sort of five euros to do. It basically says what the intention is of your trip, what your details are, and it allows them to pre-vet you, presumably for security. It's going to have a soft launch, I think, for six months where you can opt into it. Another sort of another sort of second round of soft launch where you have to do it. But if you don't, you won't be penalized. And then it comes in hard. So I think eventually we are going to face this. And this will be one of those things like doing your visa waiver for the U.S. You know, it's going to be part and parcel of, of when you go for your holidays, you have to do this stuff. So once again, you know, it, this is not the end of the world. And it's obviously not going to destroy anyone's holiday. And you'd be mad to vote remain purely for this reason or something like that. But nevertheless, it's just another tiny pain in the ass to add to a system that previously was completely frictionless and very liberating indeed. Thanks, Brexit. As we mentioned earlier, we have a special guest today, historian, blogger and former teacher Mike Stutchbury, who has been fighting the good fight against alt-right types who want to whitewash the ethnic makeup of Roman Britain because, as we all know, it's of vital importance that all Romans resemble the cast of Carry On Caesar. Mike, when the alt-right trolls targeted you, did you cry, infamy, infamy, they've all got it, infamy? They're all hot air, so, <laughs> um, you know, 90% of these guys don't do it. Uh, look, no, I got signed up for a whole lot of... Um, uh, pickup artist websites. So I've been cleaning them out of my, my spam. I've been putting them into the spam folder for the last couple of days, but um, generally, no. Really? Is that, yeah. is that all they've got? That's all they've got. I mean, look, I had a look at what um, Professor Beard is getting the other day, and uh, I, was, I was shocked, and I wonder why. I wonder why she she's getting all the scorn, and you know I, I was the original originally the one who told. It's like they hate intelligent, independent women in some way. Might be. I oh, know. No, no. Fringe fringe theory. <laughs> I mean, what was sort of absurd about the whole thing um, was that every time I saw it reported, of course, they used the picture, mm. the original picture, and it's this incredibly benign the illustration stri- for children. Yeah. Um, why is this sort of so important? In, in the culture war I can understand like Google diversity guy like that is just like red meat to these to these guys you know the guy who got sacked for his anti-diversity memo mm. I thought okay mm. that figures they want to make him as free speech martyr yeah yeah mm. but why would there be this massive fight breaking out over a children's illustration of Romans well I think you've got a lot of new new strains within the alt-right you've got these identi- identitarians Always have trouble saying that word. Um, who you know, uh, Wank- wankers, wankers, you yeah, wankers. complete pricks. <laughs> who are you know they're clinging on to a p- particular perception of, of their of their history and their culture, and so you know people like to believe that all the achievements and all the things that have happened within their history within their their particular country are their own. You know, it's somehow passed down to them. It's their it's their achievement. And when you start talking about you know oh no you had Romans you had uh, North Africans on the wall you know at the, you know this hugely important part of british history people start thinking you know well, that's not that's not my history you're taking away my history they were they were anglicized romans they were you know maybe they they joined up they've, you know they've got all these ideas about about how it was actually you know something that was innately british about it that, that caused it to happen or yeah they like to project onto onto all these events was there a limit to how far a soldier could go if they were black or if they were from you know from no. the farther no. reaches i mean i mean we we have reports that uh, we have accounts we have suppositions that septimus Severus, ah, i can't say his name <laughs> septimus severus uh was 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 north african he was distinctly olive colored and i think there's another report of um, one of the emperors coming across a uh, a, a, you know, a black um, soldier who was—he he wouldn't have been, you know, that far down if, if the emperor, emperor was coming across him, and he thought it was a grave portent because the um, the the soldier was carrying a can't remember the plant, but it was, you know, it was obviously a symbol of death, and the emperor had a hissy fit about it and decided that he didn't want to—he mm. wanted to go back to wherever he was. But um, 
No, I mean we have the accounts. We have we have we know who was there. We know the the the, the legions that were in the area, up on the wall in particular. We know that they came from North Africa and you know what world is today Algeria and also Syria. So it's there. <laughs> the proof is there, and I think that um, in, in in hearing this, a lot of the alt right sort of it's taking away from you know they're not part of the struggle. They're not part of the they're not you know. They're off in a field, tilling a field, or you know, painting themselves with woad, or you know, not not. It's you know, they're not taking part in the in the Western civilization aspect of things. Because well, history has always been mm. part of the culture wars. Yeah. You yeah. know, when Absolutely. there were kind of yeah. sort of battles in American campuses on the eighties, a lot of that was to do with uh, curriculums. But has it got? Now it just seems to be much more of a kind of participation sport. I mean, if you just do, you, do you see that there's going to be a lot more battles? about history taking place online because of the... Absolutely. I mean, in the last couple of... Certainly in the last six months, I've noticed that a particular... You know, one of the things I like to do, I like to keep an eye on the alt-right because I despise them. But um, one of the trends that I'm seeing are a lot of particular personalities sort of taking on saying, you know, Western civilization. this is fantastic. This is... These are our achievements. There's this, um, there's this Mormon... Um, woman in uh, Utah she, she, her Twitter handle is wife with a purpose and she 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 copped it hugely the other day because um, she tweeted a picture of uh, I think it was the amphitheater like I can't remember what the amphitheater was but it was a, a massive Roman amphitheater and she said even our ruins are beautiful and you know, <laughs> had 700 retweets and people saying oh western civilization posting all these pictures of, of you know Greek statues and things like that saying this is the culture that we need to protect and and you know, people obviously <laughs> went right off on her and started you know, mm. posting pictures of blockbuster videos with the same <laughs> caption. But um, but no, I've noticed this trend. This this uh, in a way, it's, it's sort of co-opting other cultures. If you know, mm. if we if you're being really if you're, gonna, if you're being real about it, that, that um, a lot of these Anglo-American groups and things like that, they're sort of taking on you know the Italian culture, well, the Roman culture. That is to say, they're taking on aspects of Greek culture. They're taking on aspects of, of stuff that came from the Near East. You know, talking about early code, codes of laws. It, 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 they, they think it belongs to them, but really, it doesn't. And but I guess there's a generational thing that you know a lot of these um, people are at least as old as me. And when I was at school, we got taught, you know, first year of high school, you start off with the Romans, maybe do a little bit of pre-Roman, but you go straight into the Romans. The Romans invented Britain, basically, and I'm sure there were no non-white representations in any of the textbooks that we had. So people have got this idea in their head that this it's, it's the sort of, um, English attitude that we are the inheritors of the Roman Empire and the Romans inherited from the Greeks and maybe the, maybe those bloody Americans are inheriting it from us and there's a sort of leading empire in the world with this kind of continuity that misses out all the real details. The history in 2017 is being filtered and distorted by the concerns by current political assumptions and debate. But the history that you grew up with in the 60s or 70s or 80s is completely sacrosanct and 100% true and entirely unaffected by and, the social norms of the time. It's, it's science, to a large extent, it's science that's rewriting it. I mean, you've, and in the last couple of years, I mean, one of the things that we, this whole thing kicked off was I, I cited a couple of three studies, um, one about a Roman cemetery in Gloucester, another one about a Roman cemetery here in, in London and a couple of bodies that were found here, and um, a woman up in York. A couple of women up in New York actually that had North, North African heritage, um, 
I, I don't go into it any further than that because you start talking to these guys online and they start, everybody's a racial scientist all of a sudden. But we know that they came from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. What's that, I mean, how, does it with this, how do we work it out sort of methodologically in history? Because you use DNA, obviously, and then they, I suppose, use artifacts and they use primary sources. And Now, now what they're doing is that they're um, using bone isotope studies, which is what they sort of go into the... Um, a scientist, but obviously they're going, they're drilling into the bone, and that can tell them. Paul Joseph Watson. That can, <laughs> that, can, yeah, that can tell you that can tell you a lot about um, what they were eating, where they were when they grew up. They're, so obviously, um, by matching it to various, you know, temperature, you can sort of write all sorts of things into the bone. Apparently, so you've got sort of, um, you know, what they ate growing up, where they were, the kind of climate they were in. So that's what's telling us where they came from. So, um, and after I was talking about this and you know cited these couple of studies another one came out a beachy head woman who was um they've just done a recreation of her but she has distinctly african features having done one of these facial reconstructions so um yeah i mean the, the science is coming through it is complete it is by necessity because it is scientific fact rewriting our history but we don't really you know it's, it, it's not as if we need this science you know that, that there's some fairly established stuff in history that you know ca- contradicts this idea that we're this island nation that has nothing to do with europe i was just trying to think how many countries in europe has britain either been in political union with or invaded by or been in the union of crowns with let's see uh, there's france the normans uh norway denmark i think at one point netherlands uh where our, where, where, <laughs> we were in reunion with the hanoverian bit of uh, germany and you know, they provided all of our royal family italy of course you know where were we not in a union with at some point in history and the idea that yet we've this is an aberration. Our forty odd years in the EU is an aberration that we should never have got into. We should never have had any in, in, anything to do with these people. Actually, the original English are, of course, the Welsh. Terrible national secret. That it's we true. <laughs> yes, it's true. Pushed, pushed into Wales and, in, and up into That's the right. club of north of, of um, Northumbria, and then yes. everybody else is a is, 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 is it's a incumbent. Yes. Yeah. yes. So one thing you hear from the, the sort of better educated Brexiteer is that uh, the EU is just trying to resurrect the project of the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, they're just trying to say they're just trying to blame Germany without saying Germany. <laughs> so, well, of course, if you go down a road, yeah. people just talk about the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Is this the kind of the, the this sort is of the highly the yeah. highly educated? Is this the bow tie wearer's yeah, yeah. version of talking yes, about the Nazis? Yes, yes, yes. One, somebody's read a few books. Um, yes, but uh, so the the role, Holy Roman Empire was was basically the German lands from about nine sixty two until the start of the nineteenth century, and. It, there's the old chestnut, you know, the Holy Roman Empire wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire. And all of those things are true. I mean, you know, holy for whatever value you give to holy. They did get the, the, the um, blessing of the popes, but after a while, they didn't care about that. They were supposed, they, they certainly weren't Romans, they were Germans. And, you know, the, uh, the, the, the nationality or the, you know, the provenance of whoever was, was ruling the empire actually started to ping around the place. I mean, you had some Spaniards, you had some people from over in, you know, Bohemia and, and, and um, uh, that sort of corner of Central Europe. And um, as Sounds for very empire... multicultural. Yes, yeah, very multicultural. As for empire, it was a patch... You know, it was, a, it was essentially a series of patchwork kingdoms that all paid tax and, you know, paid a certain amount of revenue to, 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 to the emperor. There was no fixed capital. There was no standing army as it were i mean um so it doesn't sound like it would be such a bad thing in fact to recreate the holy roman empire if it wasn't like a dictatorship from the center well, it was quite it, decentralized it, yeah it was very was, I, i'm sure there were some bad things but I mean, it, was there any downside? downside in many ways it was very laissez-faire i mean well 
I mean, if there's a downside, was that there was you know centuries of internal strife throughout the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, there's innumerable. There was the Thirty Years' War, for example, that sort of tore it apart. There was the <laughs> any number of, of, of peasants' revolts. Um, you know, every you know some of the the kingdoms that made up the Holy Roman Empire were. I mean, I'm not I'm not kidding when they say I say that a few of them were a few square miles. I mean, these duchies and there were free imperial cities which paid taxes direct directly to the emperor, and it gets very complicated. But you know, they had these mini states going to war all the time. And, you know, the, the emperor, the bureaucracy would very rarely hear about it or because it just wasn't worth their time. So, I mean, you did have everybody going their neighbour and, and, you know, beating them up and uh, hmm. starting fights Cause, all cause the time. Something, something Peter brought up last week when he was talking about why he voted Remain, you know, in a, in a, in a quite idealistic way. You know, and it wasn't just about kind of, you know, GB, GDP and tariffs and so on. It was about, you know, that Europe is a... Uh, continent that has been at war for a very, very long time, and this has been a, a I think unusually this is the long longest period of, period of prolonged peace in eight hundred years. I think, comparatively, when you look at the uh, when you look at the the actual stats and you know the number of conflicts breaking out throughout what is considered to be continental Europe, that you know since the formation of the EU, we've basically dropped to very, very low. But phase. do you think people take that for granted in a way that I, for example, realised? after Donald Trump's comments yesterday that I took for granted since, like, the 80s, that I hadn't really thought about, what if there's a nuclear war? Like, it, I just hadn't thought about it, and so I, I got sort of quite complacent. And do you think that a lot of people have got very just complacent? You know, if, if you've just grown up with the Europeans not fighting each other, you just think, well, we don't need the, the EU sort of irrelevance. Well, all you have to do is go to, the, you know, the, the, the second half of the 19th century and looking at, you know, Germany and, and Denmark going and... I don't expect Germany and Denmark to go to war, but they did. And and various other you know, states throughout Europe, um, some of the German kingdoms actually got very, very, very close to, to, to fighting one another, you know, before they were unified um, in, in the 1870s. Um, yeah. And some people went to war with themselves, presumably. Yes, and there was, there was yes, there were revolutions, yeah. revolutions across the, 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 the continent. I just never know how much, it's so hard, because, you know, you can basically explain anything in the past through using your present sort of explanations. But it's also, as I understand it, it's also the case that no democracy that trades with one another have ever gone to war. And so there are possible other explanatory factors for why it took place that are outside of the EU. I'm always a little bit wary of this, this EU argument for why people don't go to war. Because, of course, it's not like we're any closer to going to war with Canada. You know, we don't particularly need a political union there in order to do it. So uh, th there's always a variety of explanations that, that could sort of go for that thing. I don't want to put a dampener on the EU loving that's taking place in, in central well, it's London. Well, it's, right it's broader than just there's going to be no wars. I mean, the, the idea of the European project is that we collaborate on everything. You know, uh, we share a, com a common environment. It's very hard for us to, you know, if we started polluting our bit of the world badly, it would drift across the channel into, in, into Europe and vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, things like the regulation of cars, that means we can have a large um, rationalised efficient car industry that makes cars that, that run to the standards of the whole of Europe and thing, a million things like that. The ability to travel around, the, the ability to study in different universities, you know, all, the ability to do the interrail holiday without all, lots of hassles, all sorts of things. I mean, the, the European project isn't just the not let's not have any more wars but do remember, you know, Look at the Balkans. Um, these are countries that were fighting each other quite recently and were offered the prospect of a, of a peaceful um, uh, Europe and stopped fighting. You know the uh, 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 you know the Croatia and so on. Yeah, for most of the most passionate pro-Europeans I know, it's that Balkans example that really sucked them into it and thinking, actually, hang on a minute, 
this is literally saving lives right now. And I think in that kind of scenario, it can work. I also think there was an argument before with the way that Turkey was starting to change in order to join the EU to become a country where the kind of things that's happening in Turkey right now wouldn't be possible. We're also a good example, although, of course, that, that process is now stalled. Well, there used to be that claim that, that America or had never gone to war with a, a country which had a McDonald's. And then uh, during the Kosovo uh, conflict, Belgrade had a McDonald's. Ah, they bombed that. And that, that was the, the end of that Yeah, and there's this really yeah. sort of weirdly sort of jarring exception. It's just like this can actually, this mm. can happen. And you wonder, like, even now, it's like Hungary is, uh, Orban in Hungary mm. is, is appalling, but he's within the EU. And you just wonder, like, would he be more, uh, yeah, more well, threatening outside well, you, could, you, you, you could, this is a bit speculative, but you could argue that you know, the way that uh, the, the, the current governments of um, Hungary and Poland are really messing with the democratic norms that we've built up in the European Union might not have done that, but for the fact of Brexit, that you know the EU side is worrying. We don't want, we can't come down too hard on the Poles and the Hungarians, otherwise they'll have a Brexit vote as well, and we'll be and the whole thing will fall apart. You know, would we have had these things happening? Would they've been allowed to get anywhere near as far as they have done, but for Brexit? Yeah, it's astonishingly delicate. Continent in some ways, the world yeah. in general. It certainly feels it now. The more you look at Trump's Twitter feed, and you think, mm. "Oh wow, this is uh, this is apocalyptic stuff that's happening right now." Yeah, you realise the world is a sort of snow globe, and it's in the hands of a drunken. <laughs> on that cheerful note, <laughs> I have to say, by the way, before we stop talking about that, I, the thread that you did on that subject was one of the single best Twitter threads I've ever read, and it's a format which I now intend to steal from you. And it basically the format went opening moment of abuse then you basically just listed to him why he was wrong in very detailed and specific academic ways and then you finished with a tweet which i think was and by the way fuck you yes. <laughs> oh no i think it was it was, it was, it was i gotta get this right for the sake of historical accuracy <laughs> p.s get fucked <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for that, that i was waiting for that i was that was the one i was that was the tweet i was just waiting for <laughs> and i, I, I just wanted to lead with the get fucked scholarly but rectitude <laughs> yeah. and then abuse yes, well, just, he deserves I, no less yeah quite right and that's the end of the show. Thanks to our special guest, Mike Stutchbury. You've got your own history podcast coming up. Tell us about yes, it. Yes, I do. Um, it's basically going to be taking a look at all of these, um, a lot of the, the symbols and the ideas that the, the far right take, you know, the Templar Knights, the Roman Empire, um, things like you know, medieval Christianity as a civilizing influence, and then just saying it's all bullshit. And sort of tearing apart the, you know, the far right appropriation of histories. The Templar Knights are a real pressing one, so I'm probably going to lead with them. Is Paul James Watson going to have to stand in front of his big map yes. and denounce you? Yes. On yes. Imagine my shock. <laughs> And thanks as ever to Peter and Ian, the Statler and Waldorf of Brexit. This was terrible. Bring on the comedian. <laughs> I did a bad impression. <laughs> Tickets for Peter's one-man show will be available on RomaniX.com. We'll be back next week with more treachery, subversion and impressions. Remember, you can hear this episode and all our shows at audioboom.com slash channel slash dash podcast. We're going to end with a reason to be cheerful from our guest, Mike. What have you got? Okay, in the year 286, the, uh, one of the uh, commanders of the naval forces protecting Britain, and I'm going to get hell for this because I'm not going to say it right, Carousius, he was done for um, trying to profit off the, the pirates that were in, you know, plaguing the channel at the time. So in response to this, what does he do? He militarily takes over Britain. He declares himself emperor. He mints coins. We know that he got as far as, as up to the Hadrian's Wall because we've got mile markers with his name on it. You know, this first Brexit, lasted 10 years before um, you know, 
basically Rome had had enough of this shit and said, okay, we're going to send the, uh, a, a few fleets in. Um, at which point, uh, the Karasi's second in command, a guy called Electus, promptly stabbed him. And he's buried somewhere in Wales. The three legion flotillas came in, landed near Silchester, I think, and took Britain back, back into the empire, back into the bosom of empire. So, so just... Brexit is reversible. <laughs> You've just given someone the... may have to die. You've given someone... the Brex... Brexit. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There was thing. very little death. It was. It was. It was. I think there was just like one stabbing. One. Well, one stabbing and one. One minor. One minor scuffle, and everybody was like, "Okay, no, no, we're going back." <laughs> Pax Romana. Yes, yes, yes. You've given the Brexiteers, you realise, a new conspiracy theory. In other words, if we will go ahead with Brexit, and then the black helicopter will come from Brussels and they'll take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Last week I performed unforgivable acts on the Italian language to the extent that one Italian-speaking Romaniacs listener had to listen again to confirm that it was in fact Italian and not some monstrous patois (laughs) of my own invention. To avoid further insults to our cherished European neighbours, listener Adam Steinart very thoughtfully sent us some proper Italian sign-offs. So here he is, and we'll see you next week. Ciao a tutti, ci vediamo settimana prossima. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Peter Collins and Ian Dunt and special guest Mike Stuckbury. The programme editor was me, Andrew Harrison, and studio production was by Elliot Prince. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Romaniacs.